men's locker room. No? I'm going to say a hard no on that one. It's not like, so it's not like, so every dude wants to be inside your locker room like Porky's. And have like That's a bird straight drive porkies. Revenge of the nerds. <laughs> I think women. I think women who talk about men a lot want to be in the locker room. I I have bad news for you about the locker room. It is not a glamorous place. Um, it's kind of dirty. Um, I've been in some like clean locker rooms. It's just a lot of stuff I'm not trying to see in the locker room. You know what I mean? A lot of naked dudes, no towels. Well, the older the dude, the more comfortable the dude is with just having his schlong out. So you're pretty comfortable. everyone i am your host jason miles and welcome to another episode of this is revolution podcast thank you all for joining us before we start if you're new to the channel please hit subscribe and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live we're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows i was informed recently by jean bajlan that we'll be having another white guy wednesday again we need to find a name for this show. We don't know what we're going to call it. I don't think White Guy Wednesday is a good name. Uh, M. Tucson, are you there with me? I am here. Hello, hello. Welcome, M. Tucson. Thank you. Um, White Guy Wednesday, is that a bad name for the show? I like it. You like White Guy Wednesday? Should we just leave it White Guy Wednesday? Personally, I, 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 I like it. I think we should leave it that way. Should we do a survey of name ideas sure. on Twitter and whatever, and and we'll give it like you know, not even twenty four hours, but you know, like till you know the beginning of the day tomorrow, I guess. So for the rest of the night tonight, whatever, you know, give we have like four names, and whatever name, and that's the name of the show. Is that is that fair? Uh, I would give it longer, but. That's, a, that's what she said. <laughs> that's what I told her. I'm sorry. This is just this is what it's going to be. Well, we can't fix this, Megan. It's just well. what it is. <laughs> and I shrugged my shoulders and made that face, and she left. 
crying. No, laughing and uh, a little upset. But also, hope you enjoyed the Friday show we did. It was pulled from YouTube, but it's up on Twitter. And of course, it's available for patrons. And I should mention that I was a guest on the popular show on Sunday, and the audio is up, and the clips should be going live, I believe, this week of the show. Wherever you are listening to this show, there should be links in the comments and the description for the audio only. Also, if you guys are enjoying what we do here on TIR and would like to have access to the champagne room and the patron-only events like our, our movie night that we just had, where we watched Deep Cover, that was a lot of fun. I forgot how good that movie was. Also, be part of the live audience for the Mau Mau Hour. There's only one way to become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the whole year. It can all be yours. Also, after this show ends, we'll be going into the champagne room where Pascal Robert will be giving his review of the new Chris Rock stand-up special. And we'll also be taking your calls because I know a lot of people want to comment on some of the shows we just recently had like the show with Daniel Mate and also our Friday stream that got pulled by YouTube, which really hurt my feelings. That was a lot of fun to do that show. Hope you had fun too, Stop doing that, didn't you? I did. That was awesome. A fun trip down memory lane. Very different. It would have been a very different karaoke. Our guest, Paul Prescott, joined the pre-show discussion as Tucson and I were doing Incubus karaoke. Yep. Paul was not ready for that. No. So it was a very different karaoke on Friday, Paul. I promise. But speaking of a big Incubus fan, uh, he is my homie, my dog. He is the man of the Mount Mount Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. <laughs> big, big Incubus fan. Peace and greetings to the chat. Mm-hmm. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Peace and greetings, M2 Sunk. Yo. Uh, there's a comment in the chat that says this will not be well received by Garveyites. If any are still alive, um, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> you, you're a hundred, and I just I want you to live out the rest of these minutes that you have in in harmony with your inner soul. If you're new to the Garveyite scene, I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> not even a little. Bit. Not even new to the Garvey. I mean, like, who's waiting for the publication from the UNIA right now? (laughs) Steve says Dr. Umar is alive and well. Also, just don't give a fuck. Sorry. He cares about you, black man. He cares about you. I mean, you really think? There's a Garveyite walking around that's gonna like find me at some live event and challenge me to a duel. If I'm being completely honest, it may not be a Garveyite, but it might be a Jamaican. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Paul. <laughs> I'll have to. I'll have to call up Marcus then. Right. Why step after Bob Marley? Uh, Marcus Garvey is like the second famous, most famous Jamaican citizen in the history of Jamaica. Even Peter Tosh? He beats Peter Tosh. Marcus Garvey beats Peter Tosh? Yes. Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Yes. Yes. 
You think Marcus Garvey and Peter Tosh have a popularity contest? Marcus Garvey wins. Blows them away. They're running for class president, and Peter Tosh is promising longer recess and no homework on Thursdays. Garvey still wins. Garvey still wins. Real real hunted music. Real hunted music says no way Usain Bolt. I go with Usain Bolt. I think Usain Bolt. Absolutely not. You have no idea how they feel about this man. People still still name their kids Garvey. Who the hell named their kids? I've been 40, I've I've been black for 45 years and I've never met someone that named their kid Marcus Garvey. I had a friend and her brother's name is Garvey. I know more people that name their kids off characters in Boomerang and they named their kids Marcus Garvey. <laughs> you and Boomerang. That is your life, isn't it? That's just your whole life. Stranger. That's your whole life. Stranger <laughs> is, yeah. I mean, seriously. wait, isn't Grace Jones Jamaican? She is. Yes. Yeah. Grace Jones. I would be surprised if Grace Jones was a Garvey fan. <laughs> It's popular, man. I mean, Abe Lincoln was telling people to go back to Africa. That's true. Garvey Abe had cool like, hats. Uh, you guys got your freedom. Uh, you're probably going to be a little angry for them ass whoopings. It's so beautiful there. The weather is nice year round. The Captain Crunch hats with the epaulets. <laughs> <laughs> That beats the Abe Lincoln hat every time. He's <laughs> Abe Lincoln hat. <laughs> oh, you guys are too much. Well, let's talk Marcus Garvey and uh, black capitalism. Today, we're going to discuss a little bit about the history and the legacy of Marcus Garvey. Despite his reputation as a charlatan, he remains the prototype uh, black prophet for the promise of the uplift of black folks through the wonders of racial capitalism from our guest's recent article in Jacobin. Despite the patina of militancy and radicalism, the Garvey movement represented a fundamentally conservative trend in black political history. At its core, the project combined two regressive tendencies in late 19th and early 20th century black politics. The first was an abandonment of the more radical aims of reconstruction in favor of a politics of self-help, racial uplift, and entrepreneurialism. The second was an embrace of pan-Africanism made possible by the coincidence of the end of slavery in the United States and the ratcheting up of colonialism in Africa. This allowed aspiring members of the black bourgeoisie to conceive of themselves as spearheading the West's civilizing mission. Ultimately, the UNIA emerged as a response to a deep-seated pessimism about the closing off of avenues for progressive political change for the bulk of the black population. Those wonderful words were written by our good friend, union organizer, teacher, Jamaican. Is he Jamaican? He's not Jamaican. He's some, look, look, don't We're shake We're going to get into some, it. You're some We're sort of island Negro. <laughs> We're going to get Paul into Prescott. it. <laughs> Paul Prescott. Which island is it, Paul? Is it Trinidad? My, uh, my father's Barbados. from Barbados. Yes. 
And I got it. I do see someone in the chat talking about uh, cricket references. Vivian Richard is from Antigua. He's a great cricket player, but he's not Jamaican. Want to set the record? Did you have to go through a whole Jamaican history to make sure you got all the Jamaicans right? You didn't want any Jamaicans effing with you. You know what? What's funny? A quick story. When I ran for office last year, my opponent embarrassed himself in the newspaper because he was like, you know, he's like Trinidadian or whatever, uh, talking about me. (laughs) Hilarious. You know, one of those. First things first, what prompted you? uh, What's piqued your interest? Because I got I got got a question first. Oh my god! Why do you hate Jamaicans? Why do you hate them? (laughs) Wow! This is some inter-island squabbling. Right. The dollar fan drivers don't even want to touch it. They don't want any parts of Pyru Paul. Jamaica is a beautiful island. I love its people. Mm-hmm. Don't love Marcus Garvey as much, but <laughs> that's it. What prompted you to, uh, what, again, what piqued your interest uh, to want to dive deep into Garvey? Um, so in this case, actually, Jackman asked me to write an article on Garvey. Um, and they, it was kind of part of a series. They've been doing profiles of conservative thinkers. Um and but it was kind of good timing because I think I've been wanting to do a deep dive on Garvey anyway. And it's someone I kind of, you know, I, I knew a little bit about Garvey, about the Garvey movement and was interested in that. It was whatever criticism we have it, of it. It was a truly it was a mass movement. It really captured working people's imagination, even if for a brief moment. Um, so, you know, I was happy to get the chance to really go deeper on that. But Jackman actually reached out to me, asked me to do it. Wow. So the white man hired you out to meet that <laughs> right. That's right. The white man known as Bhaskar Sankara. Uh, He's a Trinidadian. Right, right. He's Trinidadian. Global white interest, Bhaskar. Um, right. Trinidadian. I met Bhaskar at the live show, and I feel like he probably couldn't point me out in the lineup. <laughs> He'd probably think you were Jamaican and then have someone write a a hit piece about you. I mean, the reality is Jackman is just like a West Indian cabal. um, I believe it. Taking over. I believe it. Just put in Griscom to throw everybody off. (laughs) You guys are so good. a little... But but seriously, I do want to actually, you know, really tackle this because I've Mm-hmm. You know, every young black person, someone tells them Marcus Garvey is like this super important figure and mm-hmm. you read about him and depending on what you're reading, it's like, wow. So can you tell us a little bit about Marcus Garvey and then mm-hmm. the UNIA and its place in history in the early 20th century? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's what's kind of amazing is that Garvey has this reputation, you know, I think if you're someone, regardless of how much you might know about Garvey, even if it's just a little bit, I think the reputation is like this very radical figure, mm-hmm. you know, um, a radical black nationalist who, who was, you know, dangerous, who, you know, all these sort of things. And it really is amazing once you start digging deeper and deeper, it is kind of 
as we say in the article, a, a fundamentally conservative ideology. So Garvey, you know, he's from Jamaica. He um, becomes a printer. He was actually part of a printer strike in Jamaica. You know, he wants to get politically involved. Um, he travels to, to Panama. He observes conditions of black workers throughout the Caribbean. Um, I think when he, his ideology starts to congeal is when he um, goes to England and he links up with, um, you know, people who identified as Pan-Africanists in London, you know, starts writing for publications. And I think what's important to know about Pan-Africanism at this time was a very openly elitist project. And I was even, you know, not knowing that much about it. I was kind of shocked some of the things I was reading, you know, from early 20th century Pan-Africanists. And the program was very explicitly, you know, we need a black elite, you know, whether that's from the United States, from the Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, we need a black elite to bring colonialism to Africa. So, you know, these are black elites that like Western civilization, that believe in it strongly and believe Africa needs this and that they are the ones to be the stewards of this. And they were very open about it. I mean, they talk openly about like, we need to civilize Africa and Africans. Um, so that was kind of what is influencing his thought. And he's also influenced by Booker T. Washington. So he reads uh, from slavery and is mm -hmm. very inspired by that. So the UNIA, I mean, its first iteration in Jamaica, um, he kind of wants to run the Booker playbook. Um, and, you know, he wants to start um, something similar to the Tuskegee Institute. He actually tries to get funding mm -hmm. um, from the British, you know, the royal government in Jamaica for a school for delinquent boys, you know, a trade school sort of thing was denied. And also, I mean, a parallel with Washington, ironically, again, thinking about the reputation of Garvey as, you know, this super radical, you know, black nationalist that hate, hates all white people. Similar to Booker T. Washington, early on, he relies actually on the patronage of white, wealthy white people um, mm -hmm. to fund the organization. You know, early on in his meetings in Jamaica, they used to make a special point to acknowledge that there was a wealthy person in the room sort of thing. Um, you know, there's some of his letters where he's writing to people saying, actually, you know, I'm only getting help from white people. Black people are actually are not, you know, funding this project. Um, Can I try that real quick? I just want to see if it works. I'm only getting help from white people. Black people are not right. funding this project. See what happens. <laughs> um, but, you know, in Jamaica, he's still a pretty um, marginal figure. So it's really not until he goes. So he arranges to meet up with Booker T. Washington in the United States. By the time he gets there, Washington is dead. Um, but it's really in the United States where Garvey sees more opportunities for the UNIA um, and where he thinks it can take off. So he establishes a base there. I think, I think the context is important because what I try to do in the article, you know, it's not just meant to be a critique of Garveyism. I mean, I think that's easy enough, but to really explain, you know, whatever our critiques are, why did this become an actual mass movement at a time when the left, you know, socialists are really struggling period, but especially among black workers to establish a mass movement. And I think this is where the context is important. You know, you have the end of World War One, um, return of many black and white soldiers. You know, you have all these um, race riots like 1919 ca called the Red Summer, race yeah. riots all across the country. Mm -hmm. I think there was a certain raised expectations during <clears throat> World War One. And, um, you know, people like W.B. Du Bois bought into this, like if, if 
black people fight well in this war, we're going to return home, we're going to start getting equality. And so that those dreams are really quickly dashed by this, you know, these race riots, um, continued discrimination. And also, I think really importantly, the labor movement is shut off to black workers. Um, you know, the American Federation of Labor was the only labor federation at that time. They only organized skilled workers, which by default meant pretty much no black workers. Um, there was a brief moment during the war where there were some interracial union organizing happening. Um, the movie, The Killing Floor, um, probably I'm sure at least one of you has seen that. People should watch that. It's a kind of a good depiction of what was happening during the war, organizing wise, and what happened afterwards. But that quickly ended with the war. And so, you know, if you're a, a black working person, you're, you're shut out of the labor movement, you're largely shut out of electoral politics. Things seem increasingly desperate, and Garvey, his ideology kind of takes root um, in this moment. And it, you know, he blends a lot of different things, mm -hmm. and he blends it with a radical sounding rhetoric that, you know, it's one of these things where I think we always talk about on the show. People can project on many different things to the rhetoric. So, you know, he, he combines issues of, of self-help, you know, pull yourselves up from your bootstraps kind of ideology, black capitalism, um, which is going to congeal in the black star line. Um, and he kind of offers, even though, you know, we can get into this more, his, his project is finally unrealistic and just utopian. At the same time, he offers a kind of pragmatic understanding that kind of, I think, um, resonated with what Black people were going through. And, you know, A. Philip Randolph spoke about this. He actually introduced Garvey to the soapbox speaker scene in uh, Harlem when he first arrives. Then quickly, he realizes they have opposing viewpoints. But Randolph has said at the time, you know, I was trying to preach the idea that white and Black workers could get together and unite and fight. And that clearly was not happening. I mean, you sounded like a fool saying that at, at the time. Um, and Garvey, he kind of had this pragmatic point of like, look, you're not going to get any help from white people. You're not going to get any help from the government. You can only rely on yourself. Um, and that in that time period, it resonated well. And so um, that's it, kind it, of the, does, does it also yeah. speak to does it also speak to this moment? And Pascal, maybe you want to get into this even more after the first war where you have Du Bois saying like, you know, if you guys just go out there and show out and really do a good job, <laughs> maybe they'll come back and they'll appreciate us a little bit. And that appreciation definitely isn't there. Um, definitely after right. the first world war. So there is something to build on as far as an animosity, um, right. even outside of the, the very bloody race riots that are going on at the same time. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about that whole uh, the role of Du Bois in World War One, as is exposed by um, uh, the book on Hubert Harrison by a friend of the show who was on the show, the uh, Jeff Perry. author, Jeff the Perry, who passed away, who we had on the show ex exposed factually that the main reason why Du Bois was advocating that black men join the army to fight in World War One is that he wanted to get a commission in military intelligence. And military intelligence was basically the element of intelligence that spied on black people at the time. And that when he was denied that commission and it was exposed by Harrison and it <coughs> humiliated uh, Du Bois profoundly to be exposed as someone who basically sent all these black men to you know die in this war and then come back and get no kind of recognition in exchange for a desire to kind of 
you know, work as an asset of the state. But one of the things that's interesting as well is that uh, Garvey is also a kind of student of Hubert Harrison at this time as well, who was developing popularity in the New York City uh, uh, kind of leftist circle. And to, to your credit, Paul, you talk about how, you know, the the black left has not fully evolved or developed yet. You know, this is before the rise of the Bolsheviks in 1917. And you have Cyril Briggs and those the other Caribbean eventual communists that come about in the uh, later period. But they're all blacks who are talking about socialism that are contemporaries of Garvey, some who are working with him, some who are not working right. with him. How do you place Garvey in the context of the burgeoning black left that is in New York at that time, Harrison, Cyril Briggs, the, the, the African Black Brotherhood, and these other manifestations that are contemporaries of that particular time period? Yeah, and I think, I mean, what you saw, I think that's more so in the early period of the UNIA as it's growing and I think at the peak of its popularity. So I think we're talking roughly like 1916, 17 to 1920. Some of these early black radicals like Harrison, um, like others are trying to relate to it. And I think for very understandable reasons. I mean, one of them is that again, the Garvey rhetoric has this sheen of radicalism. I mean, it's a militant sounding rhetoric, especially I think at the time of the, the race riots, it was talking about you know militant self-defense if, if necessary. So it, and he, you know, someone in the chat made a reference to Garvey hating communism, but liking Lenin. And I think what they're referencing is, you, you know, you can see in Garvey's early speeches, he actually references Lenin and Trotsky. He references revolutionaries along around the world and kind of places it himself in that same vein without getting too specific. But, you know, he kind of makes passing reference to these figures about, you know, the need for some kind of revolution, the need to get land, you know, he kind of melds all these things. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, yeah, he's populist and, and he, he blends these things together. And so I think, you know, for black radicals at that time, I mean, they are figuring out how to relate to it. I mean, I, I don't think in the early period, it was quite as clear. It wasn't, you know, clear as it would become later that how he was, I mean, frankly, would become a grifter or, or how fundamentally conservative the ideology was. I also think they wanted to relate to a mass movement. It's like, look, this is where people are in motion. Black working people are in motion. How how can we relate to this? You know, how can we figure this out? Um, so I think I mean, that NAACP. Kind of, what's that blows up around this time? I said the NAACP is blowing up around this time as well. So yeah, I mean they and you know and I think back to the point about, I mean the role of World War One and and I think part of it too was this this raised expectations of you know more black people moving to northern urban centers. Um, getting jobs they weren't getting before. I think this taste of something could be better. And then all of a sudden the war, it's closed off again. And it leads to a growth in the NAACP as well as the UNI, UNIA. But, um, you know, and, and something that um, Judith Stein, who wrote a great book on Garvey called The World of Marcus Garvey, um, she kind of also explains that, you know, during World War I, this idea of liberty bonds was very possible very popular. I mean, these mass rallies of people coming out, buying shares and bonds to help the war effort. And Garvey very intelligently kind of just uses that same framework to fund the Black Star Line, which is really, you know, his idea for this is the shipping line, a Black owned shipping line that would be the beginning of a global Black trading empire. And, you know, 
the UNIA has basically turned into an organization to fund the Black Star Line. I mean, you know, he attaches on other rhetoric and all this stuff, but really that's what it's about. And the mass rallies are really about, it's, it's sort of like copying the structure of a, you know, a, a Liberty Bond rally during the war for the UNIA. And now they also have a new base, a, a larger base of black workers who have some income, and that is the, the funding base for the UNIA. Um, and it's this interesting combination of it's still an elitist politics. I mean, he's still, you know, he wants to be the leader. I mean, he declares himself Can we pause for a second and kind of move back to what you were talking about? Yeah. The, the workers in the UNIA and you talked you touch on this in your piece. And I think this yeah. is kind of an important part <clears throat> about the Garvey legacy. And I think why, depending on how you tell the story of Garvey, it's going to resonate with people. And why someone like <clears throat> there's some jokes and maybe some mildly serious comments in the chat about Umar Johnson, um, who you know, I'm not even gonna make make a joke right now, I'll be really serious. There's something to be said about being locked out of union labor and being right. a skilled worker, like literally having that union skill. You are a Finnish carpenter, you are a, a pipe fitter, but you can't get union wages or or those protections. And this man is promising you a certain level of dignity in your work, even though, <laughs> as you write in your piece, that's not what happened. Even with the ship captains, that's not what happened because right. it was all you know, ultimately a Ponzi scheme. Um, but but, Pascal, you but again, I mean, they don't they don't know that's not going to happen at first. You know, so it's and and also I mean, what's kind of interesting. It's almost like, and I'm not even saying this. Uh, even in an insulting way, it's almost like he's start he's running a startup company as he's going. So you have intelligent, talented, skilled black people who are being locked out of politics, out of unions, and he's offering them jobs in a way in his startup company, offering them dignity and a future where they're not getting it anywhere else. And so again, when you look at it that way, it actually makes a lot of sense why many people were taking up into this. You know, it's easy for us to say, well, we would have never join that but you know it's it's all about the context people are, are living and operating in one of the Sorry, things Pastor. that one of the things that i think it is very important to realize is the context of the time periods is going on in the early 20th century right we have some of the most racially hostile lynchings and attacks on black people not only throughout the south but you know the rabid segregation we have the you know the early waves of the great migration we also have the rise of the talented 10th racial uplift movements with the Urban League, the NAACP, and all of that. We have the rise of all, you know, the, the you know the Divine Nine and all these other racial so uplift movements. So there's a proliferation of elite race management organizational infrastructure developing in black spaces that is a reaction to the extent of profound racial hostility that black people are facing from the time of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1897, up throughout, and don't forget also in 1913, you have Woodrow Wilson who becomes president, which is the first Southern Dixiecrat who becomes president of the United States in the 20th century, who is profoundly hostile to, to, to black people you have war, you know, World War One. So this is a very, very intense, racially charged 
powder keg of an environment that all of these competing ideas are dealing with. You have Garvey, you know, pr proposing his kind of, you know, revanchist black nationalism. You have the traditional liberal kind of uh, talented 10th, uh, Du Boisian uh, uplift the race uh, with, along with the Urban League. You have all these other, you know, collegiate organizations developing. Uh, you also, you know, you, you know, Booker T. Washington with his kind of regressive traditional, you know, uh, ideology. He dies in 1915. So you have all of this, you know, Hubert Harrison is in, in the Northeast. You also have uh, Caribbeans coming to the United States, moving to Harlem and other parts of the Northeast. So this um, a massive confluence of competing ideas for the hearts and minds of Black people and the one that kind of reigns victorious, whether we like it or not, in terms of sheer numbers, if, is, is, is Garveyism. And I think one of the things that is important to understand is that the role of uh, racial vindicationism or racial redemption, which is something we've talked about in the show a lot, in the popularity of Garvey and how Garvey played into the desire of literate reading Black people's desire to be acknowledged to be worth considering as people, to be a great people, to be a noble people, and how he played into that rhetoric to infuse them with this kind of nationalistic fervor. Can you, you, can you touch on that somewhat, Paul? You know? Well, would you say that Garvey is, is proto-PMC? in his because <laughs> this is also a man like like you know sorry to cut you off paul but yeah. you write about this in the piece this is also a man that was really pro jim crow yeah in his weird way now i mean I'll, I'll get to that um but i mean to, to what pascal was saying i mean i think that's exactly right i mean e franklin frazier wrote uh you know a piece about garvey and being very critical of what he said it was like you know he's giving you know black working people and middle class people an outlet for dignity that they're not getting anywhere else so you know and he has a line in there where he says you could be working as a pullman porter by day and getting disrespected and underpaid but at least you know when you go to the garvey meeting you can dress up in the army uniform you know you can be proud if you're a black woman you can you can join the black cross they had their own section in, in the UNIA newspaper. Um, so again, he's giving outlets to people who are not getting them anywhere else. Um, and so I think that played into, it wasn't just a practical thing, but I think it also played to people's emotions and is promising future glory. You know, you're going to be part of this now new global empire um, throughout the black world. And in his speeches, he's always, you know, it's of course absurd, but he's always talking about the 400,000 black people all over the world that he represents and that they're, you know, the 1920 convention of the UNIA in Harlem, just, I would say is probably like the, the peak of their popularity. He declares himself the provisional president of Africa, which of course no one in Africa was consenting to or voting on, but, you know, he declares himself that, um, but that, you know, the class composition of the movement is interesting because many of the leaders were, I guess what we would say now as, as PMC types, but it still relied on a working class base, um, you know, for funding, for just moral support. And that was kind of what was interesting about the Garvey project. It, it was still fundamentally an elitist project, but it enlisted the support 
of the masses. And that was a blend that you really weren't seeing up to that time. Um, and it really just captured people's imaginations. You know, again, I mean, just think about the, one of the things Garvey was known for was these really extravagant parades. Um, and, you know, it might seem silly, but it's also like, we know that has an effect on people to feel part of a group, you know, to feel dignity and, and feel regal and all that sort of thing. So I think, I mean, he was a master at propaganda and that was part of the thing with the steamship. It, you know, was um, early on, it was, a, it was a symbol of propaganda that he could use to try to fund, to get more money, presumably to get more ships. I mean, that didn't really work out, but um, he, he was really a master at using propaganda and playing on people's emotions, especially people who were really, you know, desperate for some kind of dignity. No, I, 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 I agree with that analysis as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not remotely a Garveyite for a variety of reasons, but in terms of the context of the space and time, which is a, he is existing, he plays very well into a tradition that existed within the kind of racial uplift narratives right. of black nationalism that goes back to the 19th century, going back to yeah. like, you know, the, er, the early fathers of, uh, of black nationalism, which has all, which was always a project of kind of like racial vindicationism, racial redemption, uplift, and, you know, the kind of, we will redeem, you know, the, the degraded mm. African type of discourse and politics. And uh, that's my main problem with the Black Nationalist Project is that it's always based on the assumption that Black people are defective and need to be redeemed right. or healed or remedied or fixed because they are broken. Which is, if you actually listen to Garvey rhetoric, that was a major theme of his speech. That he literally would publicly state that, like, black people are defective. They are, you know, they are they are broken people. That they, you know, there's something wrong with them. And you know, that that language has always struck me as kind of really counterintuitive because it's something that would not be accepted if it was discussed by someone who was white, yeah, because someone who purports to be right. a black nationalist is telling you that you're actually going to say, yeah, exactly, you know, Negroes are defective and broken, right. and all that other, you know, jazz. So so I, I, I definitely agree with the limitations of the idea. And it, there's no question that, you know, this, this iteration of black nationalism, which I think would be called within the context of the various forms, classical black nationalism. I mean, you know, the good book, the, the, one of the great books that I talk about all the time, uh, uh, you may be familiar with it, The Golden Age of Black Nationalism by uh, Wilson Jeremiah Moses, where he does a very good job, and he talks about Garvey as well, of explaining the origins of black nationalist philosophy that comes out of really the 19th century and, you know, the, uh, the in the 1850s and the Fugitive Slave Act and how that gives birth to 19th century black nationalism. But it's very much a kind of racial vindicationist, redemptive, uplift the race kind of project rooted in the belief that quote unquote black people will need to be fixed because there's something wrong with them. And it is also elitist in that regard. Mm -hmm. Right. I'd like to, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, frankly, in a lot of his speeches, I mean, you'll sound like Bill Cosby. It's like the early 20th century equivalent of just pull your pants up is mm. what you hear in a lot of Garvey's speeches, um, you know, to, to black audiences. Uh, I wanted to pick up in, on your point in regards to Garvey's conservatism. 
not to read your whole article, but you write in the article, the logical conclusion of Garvey's racial ideology was fully revealed in his dealings with the Ku Klux Klan and the Jim Crow South. What were Garvey's dealings with the Klan and what did they show about his ideology? Yeah, and, um, and this is where the contradictions really are fully revealed because, you know, ultimately his ideology was so closely mirrored by those that believe in, in Jim Crow or white supremacy because Garvey never challenged the idea that humanity is divided into different racial groups that should be separate and are also in an, a never ending constant struggle with each other. And when you really, you know, read him closely, what I mean, what he's ultimately will be saying is that, you know, black people are losing and that's bad, but we need to win against these other competing races. And he'll blend that with, you know, going back to talking about the early forms of Pan-Africanism, where he's saying like, yeah, actually Western civilization is superior and we need to impart that on uncivilized Africans and uncivilized African-Americans. And so in his speech to Jim Crow about Jim Crow, um, it can it gets very strange because like he'll almost it almost seems like he has this admiration that whites have been able to win in this racial battle. So there's a famous line where he says that, you know, you should thank Jim Crow for, quote, um, lynching race pride into the Negroes. Um, you know, thanks to Jim Crow, we have black nationalism and, and race pride. Um, other lines were kind of saying, like, well, why are we we shouldn't be mad at the white people for creating these aspects of civilization that we didn't create? We need to now you know, take up these tools of civilization. And so and this comes to a head where they, um, you know, they want to expand branches in the South. You know, UNI is really strong, mostly in the North and the Midwest. Um, and so they actually broker a meeting with a high up member of the Ku Klux Klan in the South. I forget exactly what state um, they met in. Um, and this caused, you know, a lot of uh, controversy, but it, it was a logical conclusion of this idea that, you know, we have a lot in common with the ideology of the Klan of separate racial racial groups that are in competition with each other. Um, you know, there was, um, I'm forgetting the name of the society. I didn't mention it in the article, but, um, you know, one of these white supremacist societies wasn't the Klan, but, um, you know, one of their speakers got up at one of their meetings and said, you know, I read Garvey's work and thank God there are black people saying this that needs to be said that, you know, black people should not be in this country like we are inherently separate sort of thing. They're, they'll be much happier if they follow Garvey's words. Um, you know, Garvey also would praise, I think there were some, you know, um, Southern Congress people that endorsed the idea of moving black people out of the United States sort of thing. So, you know, when you get down to it, his, his ideology is very compatible with, um, white races and, and the system of Jim Crow. And I think I mean, one big reason they can't take root in, in the South as an organization is that they're not dealing with the actual issues black people are facing, which is mostly to do with getting rid of, of Jim Crow. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is kind of revealing that um, when you get down to it, he's sharing um, these fundamental views about race um, about, you know, a lot of fundamental views about race science, frankly. And it's sort of like, well, actually, you know, the, the white, white people did well from by winning in this competition. We got to figure out how we can win. Um, and that's the sort of how you would approach it. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about uh, your foray into quote unquote black nationalist thought and discourse and 
this particular iteration of a classical black nationalism and its conservatism is that how there is a direct line from Garveyism to the Nation of Islam, because as you know, you know, the founder of the Nation of Islam was, was, was the early founder was a Garveyite, as a matter of fact. And like, there is a direct line between the rhetoric of Garveyism and this of the other manifestations of classical nationalism that manifest contemporarily. And there's this belief that there's somehow something radical or militant about, you know, saying, you know, why he done you wrong without making any kind of demands on the political system and saying, like, pull up your bootstraps and, you know, do it yourself. Don't depend on the government that you pay taxes to that hasn't, you know, that has disproportionately, you know, underserved you. And what do you attribute the consistent popularity of that worldview not only in 1920 to 1940 when Garvey is alive, but even throughout the 60s, 50s, and even somewhat today, that type of kind of uh, self-help, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, classical nationalist discourse is not only popular uh, amongst conservatives, particularly black conservatives, mm-hmm. but there's some people who consider themselves, you know, quote unquote, black radicals or radical in some way who think that there's something, you know, powerful about that. What do you attribute right. that to? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've, I mean, what's partly hard to answer is that I can't fully get into people's minds. But I think for one is that I think it's a lot easier to wrap your head around the ideology of self-help as opposed to an ideology of building a mass movement, you know, to win fundamental reforms, to pressure the state or, 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 you know, win against employers. I think it's much easier to kind of wrap your head around, well, let me focus on improving myself. Let's see if I can start my own business um, or let's see if I can support other black owned businesses sort of thing. Um, this kind of like small scale local self-help ideas, I think are, kind of easier to wrap your head around it and in some cases implement because it doesn't involve building a popular movement to go up against the state and powerful forces. And, you know, at the beginning, when you all said that um, you don't think any Garveyites are, are watching this right now, I think there's a lot of neo-Garveyites today. And it's this interesting moment where, you know, in a very non-threatening way, many of these um Garvey tendencies or really just broadly black nationalist tendencies have gone very mainstream. I mean, especially when it comes to, I mean, it's the whole buy black initiatives, um, black business ownership, racial entrepreneurialism, um, you know, let's figure out every way to package anything black as a way. And we're going to sell that as this is like furthering the movement. I think that stuff is so mainstream and popular today. And I think it also takes hold because it really is in line with the dominant ideology that surrounds us so i mean it's it's already reinforced uh by the ruling class and the media because it's it's another form of capitalism um so and it's kind of a i mean a sad indictment that people who think they're resisting the system are it the hegemony is so strong that they're really just reflecting back similar kinds of values that are just packaged a little bit differently um but i think it just speaks to because the alternatives that we really need are much more difficult um, and long term to achieve, I think people kind of like to to grasp onto something that seems achievable in the short term, 
Um, and I think these sort of things do. And like, again, to transfer it into today, it's like, you know, the idea that, um, you know, instead of like a, an actual social welfare legislation, like, um, you know, let, let's start a little nonprofit to help out this or that. Um, let's like do mutual aid for a day or whatever. Um, that's just, you know, you can feel like you're doing something and it's a lot easier to carry out as opposed to this um, larger transformational change. Um, I don't know if that really answers it, but that's, I, I, I that's mean, all I got to kind of explain, you know. Pascal and Paul and, and Toussaint, does it also speak to kind of a politics of, of black people in, in, uh, in high places? As, as signs of victory. I mean, uh, the majority of Garvey's, the majority, Garvey's ideology is, you know, kind of one of, of a superior black bourgeoisie and colonialism, which um, doesn't really challenge capitalism at all. Does He cares not to really address it. And it's also fascinating to me that this happens during a time of mass politics, you know, unlike now. Where I think you know he could be, you know, a, a, an internet hustler, if you will, that probably wouldn't have anywhere near the, the same uh, power that he would have. Crypto. Uh, crypto, yeah, yeah. Right. Crypto. Selling crypto. Yeah, crypto hustler. I mean, ultimately, that's what those ships were. Those ships were crypto. It was going to be your freedom. You know, we're going to trade with Africa. I don't know what. Yeah, I mean, it, right. it's very easy easy to imagine someone like him doing that today, or maybe and maybe not even having to make it political. Because I mean, if the goal was to open up the same kinds of business opportunities for Black people, if that is done to a certain degree, it's like why you can then drop the political mission part of it. Um, Well, we can see the the black bourgeoisie elitism and his plans for Liberia. Mm. He essentially was going to continue the caste system. But I guess the idea was to inject a bunch of Americans into the Liberian caste system as if they would allow for that. But maybe that's just a sense of the superiority that he had. It yeah. was basically a racial civilization, civilizing mission. You know, it's in other mm -hmm. words. Think you know, good, well, well, culture, acculturated, bourgeois Christian black folk from the West, and go teach those you know savage native people how to eat with forks and wear ascots. You know, it was you know, it's it's about a civil a mission of civilization, again under the whole no, kind of literally vindicate yeah. and redeem the race. Right. Dinner yeah. at the Robert household is a treat, and again, it, it's it's striking how openly they stated exactly what Pas pascal said i mean there was no really nuance or hiding it and and it is it's just kind of amazing how today garvey to still be viewed as some kind of like hero of africa when not only the ideology he stated but in his concrete dealings with the project of trying to redeem africa you know i mean only got as far as trying in liberia and um the whole game of it was to try to displace the Liberian ruling class. I mean, that's kind of a whole story for maybe another show, but that, that was the whole project of it. I mean, he wasn't even able to get support of people within Liberia or anyone within the Liberian ruling class. And it kind of just faltered very quickly. Um, and that's really all he had to show for forays in Africa. Um, and, and in, you know, private correspondence with 
other people in UNIA really displayed a lot of contempt for, you know, Liberians and, you know, basically just wanted to run, run the show himself. And it's just amazing how you can, that reality and you fast forward to today and you kind of just evacuate all the content of that. And he's just a hero of Africa. Um, it, it's just amazing how and, and that it's not happened. a redistributive mission. And I, and I think people right. are missing the point, you know, socialism, communism is a redistributive mission, right? You want to redistribute the wealth. Garvey's not trying to really redistribute the wealth to all the Negroes. There's a super chat. Uh, did you want to read this one, Toussaint? Sure. One second. Let me pull it up. I think I pulled it up. Bam. All right, fine. You pulled it up. Thank you, JB. This is from JB. Was Garvey at all influenced by Du Bois's talented 10th ideology, or were they entirely separate lanes? They definitely did not like each other at all, but I think he, he offers a different type of elitism that's not rooted in elite university trained professionals, but more kind of like socially accultured men of letters who are a different type of, of elite. Can you explain men of letters? Uh, men who are well-read, who are literate, who may not necessarily have a, a university, autodidactics like Hubert Harrison, who may not have a university education. Right. Didn't he kind of also appeal more to like working people that were actually getting a check? Yeah, yeah a lot of work <laughs> trying people. to get. Yeah, and you know, and I think in the actual leadership of the branches and the chapters, it was more so men of the black elite. But you know, the membership, you know, there was a lot of working people, people who were donating to the Black Star Line. Um, you know, included a lot of working class people. But I mean, I think Pascal's right that even though they were bitter enemies and also i mean someone put in the chat earlier du bois is complicated as fuck i mean i think that's the best right anyone's ever put it and he <laughs> evolved a lot and changed over his you know but i think even though they kind of considered themselves enemies i mean it was just different sides of the same coin of the talented 10th argument um you know fundamentally elitist but just different ways of carrying that out and even you know in some of the articles du bois wrote criticizing garvey you know and kind of stating plainly that he's this is a sham, he's defrauding people. And especially earlier on, Du Bois's critique is more so like he should just run it better. He should just be like a be better businessman and a more honest businessman. If he, if he could just learn how to actually be a good administrator, maybe this plan would have worked better. Um, so, it, you know, it's kind of like a, a different kind of critique than a than a fundamental, you know, critique at its core. We have another. We have another super chat before we go as we're wrapping up here. Uh, Strom McCallum has this question to ask, and maybe Paul can uh, answer this because I don't. I'm too old to know. Uh, would Marcus Garvey have gotten along with Tiny D? Who's Tiny D? Is that T.D. Jakes? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it would have got along swell <laughs> if it's T.D. Jakes. Who's Tiny D? Sean McCallum is quite so a scholar. I'm wrong, but was Garvey ever expressly anti-colonialist, imperialist? No. No. Well, he opposed he, wasn't he would. Uh, Are we still trying to oppose colonialism? Yeah. Tiny I mean, DeSantis. He... Oh, Tiny. Meatball Ron is Tiny D, so it's Ron DeSantis. Meatball. Would Garvey have gotten um, along? 
Garvey would have got along with anybody that could have got him what he wanted. That's yeah. what it sounds like. I mean, let's just be honest with what it is. It's not and, about, you know. Right. And maybe I, I mean, I could maybe say this as we're wrapping up. I mean, we want to talk about how and why the UNIA declined. And I think, I mean, there's a temptation, kind of a similar thing. I know you had Adolf Reed on talking about the Panthers. I mean, there's a similar temptation there to say it was all state repression, right? And I think mm -hmm. that is sometimes used with Garvey. J. Edgar Hoover, his first task as an agent was covering um, Garvey. Um, but, you know, the, it was very clear early on that the Black Star line was not viable. I mean, they were just constantly losing money. A lot of the people on the ships couldn't actually be paid and left. And once they lost that sort of concrete project, the organization just evolved into competing factions of ambitious men, essentially. Um, and, you know, Garvey had a, a really bad reputation for, you know, lying about money, stealing money. Anyone who questioned him was, you know, um, dismissed and labored a, a traitor sort of thing. Um, so by 1925, really, the organization was just dead. Um, Garvey was in prison on mail fraud, which, which essentially was a trumped up, up charge. But um, the, the organization was really on its way out anyway. And, you know, someone in the chat asked about, you know, what would the socialist response to someone like Garvey be? And I think we kind of actually had a real example of that in the 1930s, because what displaced Garveyism was the rise of the labor movement, the Congress of Industrial Organizations that would organize black workers. So you have en masse black workers in the auto industry and in meatpacking and rubber and steel and all sorts of things joining the labor movement and, you know, seeing real improvements in their lives. I mean, a good example of this is one of the captains of Garvey's first ship who would become disillusioned. And in the 1930s, he then works on staff at the National Maritime Union, which was a communist-led, very racially egalitarian union um, on the West and East Coast. Um, so that's a good example of, you know, someone who's, talents were not captured by the Garvey movement or was disillusioned, then being pointed in a more radical direction because there was an infrastructure there. And also the rise of, of the New Deal, you know, and I think those two things are kind of displaced Garveyism because they start to, obviously not fully, but they start to address, you know, working people's actual needs um, after it was very clear that the Garvey movement couldn't. Well, thank you very much. That is Paul Prescott. You know him as contributing editor of Jacobin. We know him as just light skin Paul. Um, oh. Are you going to hang out with us for a little bit while we talk about the Chris Rock thing? You got to go uh, do important stuff. No, I, I can hang out for a little. Oh. I have one more Garvey question. We'll do it in the yeah. champagne room. You're going to do it in the champagne room? You sure? Yeah. All right. Ooh. Do you want to do it now? No. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it in the champagne room. We'll keep doing it clean. We're doing it live. We're doing it live. Thank you, Thanks. Paul. Thank you, everybody, <laughs> for, for tuning in. Thank you, everybody, Thank for the you. super chats. We appreciate it. This episode definitely is going to get uh, demonetized. Thank you to the Hotaps for being here. We see you. We, we appreciate, appreciate you. The yeah, Hotaps work. Oh, dude, there's so yeah. many hoteps right now. They're just no all bean pie? Come on, y'all didn't bring no bean pie? What's wrong with y'all, man? Hey, not every hotep is in the nation, but everyone in the nation. They still know where to get the good bean pie, though. Surprise how many people love the crack.
remember that. No patchouli oil? Stop it. It's the incense. Yo, Garvey, Garvey. Yo, I, I said Garvey. Pascal's trying to start a fight. For real? Because he's in Florida. He doesn't care. There's no right. hotels in Florida. He knows. Uh, there are Jamaicans in Florida. <laughs> there's Jamaicans. They're all retired. There's no. There's no. Was <laughs> a retired hotel's going to yell at him? There's Jamaicans in Florida. Can you imagine a retired hotel yelling at Pascal? <laughs> was the incense? That sounds like a show to me. <laughs> Pascal versus retired hotel. <laughs> Thank you, guys. We'll see you in the champagne room. We're going to be taking some calls in the champagne room. Tucson, how many calls are we going to take? Um, we're three. gonna get seventeen, but we want to take three. Okay, I like like the cut of your jib, and we are out. Black.